You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. We are back in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, I do want to encourage you, if you missed any of our um, series in Foundations in February, going through First Peter, um, take some time and go back and listen to or watch those sermons. They're very integral in who we are um, as the church. Um, I know that many of you in this room are probably familiar with what I'm about to talk about because there's a lot of you that travel more than I do. Um, but a few years ago, they came up with this beautiful new invention called TSA PreCheck. Um, anybody in here familiar with the PreCheck? Yes, the travelers. Um, so TSA decided that you can pay this $85 fee and have a background check run. And for five years, you get this clearance that while all the other sad folks are getting in line at the airport, getting their ticket stamped, taking off their shoes and their belt and emptying their pockets and getting their laptop out and all this stuff, you get your ticket stamped and you walk right on through. Just waving at the other folks. Um, you know, uh, it's a kind of a no-brainer. Like, I thought, I'm spending this $85. And granted, I know, I don't travel as much as a lot of you do in this room. Um, but every time I do, I'm like, I'm glad I spent that money. And while we do it, because it saves me some time, it helps me avoid hassle. Here's the thing. Once you use it one time, you realize very quickly that the best thing about TSA PreCheck is you feel special. I mean, you feel privileged. It's like first class without a seat. Because you just get to look at all the other folks over there taking their shoes off. And again, and some of you may think, well, what's the big deal? Take my shoes off, take my belt off. Well, so my friend Paul who's also a pastor. I like to tell stories about other pastor friends. Paul's traveling a few years ago with a group of men and they're on their way home. And um, Paul's ADD looks, makes mine look very, very like it's not even there. And Paul's taking his shoes off, taking his belt off. And the next thing he knows, he's just taking his pants right on off <laughs> as well. And the TSA lady about karate kicked him in the face. And uh, so... I just want to avoid anything like that ever happening, you know? Um, so we're usually smart enough and discreet enough that we're not going to like snobby, you know, snob other people or especially point. We've been taught pointing is not polite. Um, but the thing is, like, while I want to feel special, and I do, I also have this empathy toward the people in the other line because I've been there like more times than I can count. I've been taking my shoes off and emptying my bag and my pockets and on and on and on. I didn't sign up for pre-check uh, so that I could feel special. Really honestly, wasn't even thinking about anything like that or thinking about anyone else. It was simply the thought of this will save me time. Um, this is a no brainer. This is smart. I should do this. Where do I sign? But somehow as I began walking through there the very first time, I began to feel special, and I don't think I've gotten over it. So the last time that we were in Romans, at the end of chapter 1, 
Paul is addressing the sins of the unrighteous. And when Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, it's almost as if he knew that when the church received the letter and they were reading it, that there was going to be maybe that guy in the room. Maybe he's back in the corner, just kind of feeling special, eyeballing other people in the room, thinking, I hope Betty is listening to this list of sins. I know somebody that needs to hear this. Like there's somebody hearing this and thinking, maybe I'm above this. Maybe I'm exempt from this. Um, Most people don't have any trouble believing in the idea of sin. Most people, period. Because we say things like, well, nobody's perfect. We wouldn't say those kind of things if we thought anyone was perfect. The thing about it is, however, that seems to change when it's us who is under the microscope. We seem to, to see things just a bit differently. And so remember, we all innately have this thing woven within us that we want to be special and exempt and privileged. One of the evidences that we have this malfunction within us is if you look at most of the things that drive us crazy about other people are actually things that we probably deal with. It just seems to work that way. Um, Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are hiding. They finally come out of hiding and they're confronted by God. And what is Adam's first response? Well, the woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. She made me eat it. It's her fault. We just see other people's sin different than we see our own. So the Apostle Paul confronts our unrighteous lives. And now this morning we're going to, cons- to see him address God's righteous judgment. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2. But before we dive headfirst into it, I'd like to read again at the very end of Romans chapter 1 with you. So if you'll turn there, Romans 1, verse 29. And remember, the Apostle Paul, throughout this, from about verse 18 to 25, is very specifically addressing the sin of homosexuality, but now because he doesn't want anybody to think that this sin is something greater than other sin, Paul kicks the door wide open and says, let's level the playing field here. Romans 1 verse 29, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy. They want what everybody else has. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty or prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
again, as you read this list, as you hear these things being read, you can almost see or hear the Pharisee, the Judaizer, the religious moral police over in the corner making eyes at somebody, probably not pointing, but passing judgment. Paul's about to confront this and call them out. Now, again, the unrighteous in chapter 1, Paul says that they not only do what they know is wrong, they give approval to others who do it as well. But what's going to happen in chapter 2 is, Paul now confronts this man. And what Paul addresses now is, is that there are those of us who we not only do what we know is wrong, we condemn other people for doing the very same things. And Paul is saying this is serious audacity, this is overt hypocrisy, and so he's going to confront the religious hypocrite. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says, you do the very same things. You're guilty of the same things in your heart and in your lives, yet you condemn other people for doing these things. Do you understand, Paul's words, not mine, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. Paul is saying, when you and I judge others over this behavior, we are showing and revealing that we know it's wrong. I'm not going to judge you for doing it unless I think it's wrong. Well, I'm revealing there that I know it's wrong, yet I go and I do it myself. Yet you do these same things yourself. Again, this goes back to our our issue here that somehow within us we think that we're special. We think that we're exempt. Paul says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? When Paul asks a question like that, he's essentially answering it for us. No, you won't. Don't suppose that you will escape the judgment of God. And here's why. God's judgment is inescapable. You and I, no one can run from God's judgment. Now, here's something I want to throw out to you for just a moment to consider. Understand that when you hear the word judgment, you and I, we all have a negative connotation that comes with that word. But you do understand that every single day, judges rule in favor of people. Now, some people, judges say, sorry, you're guilty. Adios. We'll see you in 20 years if you're good. But some people, the gavel goes down and the judge has said, I'm finding in your favor. This is going to be about where you stand in Christ, okay? But God's judgment is inescapable. 
Paul goes on and he says, don't mistake the patience that God is having for you. Don't mistake that because God has not struck you dead in the midst of your sin. Don't mistake that for him giving approval to the way that you're living or the sin that you're walking in. God is patient. Why? Paul says it here. Because he desires that all of us would come to repentance. Not walk in self-righteousness. Peter echoes the exact same thing Paul is saying. If you look in 2 Peter for a moment, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of us count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God's desire God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. With this issue of judgment, have you ever noticed that your own proclivities towards sin usually become your same annoyances with other people's sin? Like, let me give you an example. Um, and, And I don't like to, you know make my family uncomfortable in here. Um, I think we've joked in our house, if we had a third child, their name would just be sermon illustration. But uh, let me stick my neck out this morning and share something with you. Don't, don't make eyeballs at my family in the midst of this. But um, if I was to tell you what drives me more crazy or frustrates me more than anything in my home and in our family, it's, it's when I see my daughter wrestle with needing to have control over things or my son deal with anger or my wife deal with impatience. Do you know why those things frustrate me and them? Because nobody deals with them more than me. But their need for control and their anger and their impatience is way worse than mine. I mean, right? No. But in our minds and in our view, it very often is. Like their sin looks like a big gigantic wart and mine's just a blemish. It'll be gone soon. You know, that's the way we kind of think and look at each other's sin. And it happens nowhere more magnified than it does in our homes. I know that a lot of times we're probably genuinely perplexed at how God can possibly persist and tolerate some people. Like, how long, oh Lord, will you deal with this? But friends, I want to exhort you this morning, however greatly amazed or perplexed that you are with God's patience toward others, you and I should be even more humbled by his patience toward us. It would probably be a very healthy daily exercise for us to wake up every morning and say, hey, Lord, just remind me this morning how patient and merciful and gracious and kind have you been towards me? God is the just judge. You are not. I am not. Let's alleviate ourselves and one another of that burden today. And in fact, we're so incapable of that. Jesus even says to us, 
hey, don't even think about helping your brother or sister get the speck out of their eye until you've gotten that massive log out of your own. Now, don't mistake here, you and I need to get the log out of our eye because we're called to help our brothers and sisters get the speck out of theirs. But Jesus is saying here, don't burden yourself with believing that you are the judge of the world. You can't handle it. You and I, we are not expected to judge and we are not qualified to condemn. That burden is not on us. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You all know John three sixteen. We need to know verse 17 as well, though. Jesus goes on and he says uh, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. If Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, why on earth would you and I think we're here to do that? That's not what we're here for. And when we stand in judgment of others and condemn them, especially people who don't even know Christ, while we fail to examine and repent of our own sin, this is the highest form of hypocrisy and double standard. And in fact, it is blatantly rejecting what Jesus said that he came to do because he said, I have not come to condemn the world. Why? The world's already condemned. I've come to save it. And so when you and I begin to act like we're here to condemn the world, we are rejecting the very thing, the very Savior that has saved us. It's kind of messed up. We sometimes think we're special. We do. Now again, side note, big asterisk here. This is not us talking about confronting and admonishing one another about our sin. This is not about a brother or sister confronting the sin in one another's life. We are called to do that. We're talking about a lost world around us who do not even yet see or acknowledge that they are in sin. We're called to walk with one another, to exhort one another, admonish one another, confess and repent to one another. Back to Romans. Look at verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality... He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God's judgment is inescapable. It's also impartial. Our justification in the eyes of God is through faith. It is based on our belief in what Christ has done on our behalf in his death 
and his resurrection. And because of this justification, because of this faith, if your life is in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, your life is hidden with Christ in God, then your position is settled. Our justification is through faith. But again, our judgment is based on our works. Our judgment is based on our works. In James, well, first of all, back here in Romans chapter 6, again, it says God will render to each one according to his works. In James chapter 2, verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is writing this, and James was standing there when Jesus said what he did in John chapter 15. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you are in me, your, your life will bear evidence, will bear fruit to this. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, that you give this evidence, and so prove to be my disciples. The saving faith in our hearts is revealed by the presence of good works in our lives. And friends, the judgment, again, I think that we have an idea in our head that this word, it, there's always a negative connotation to it. Um, our position in Christ is going to have all the bearing of eternity of us standing before God. But we are also going to face what we did or didn't do that reveals this faith. Verse 12. Romans 2 verse 12. For all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Before your head spins around backwards from hearing the word the law again, and we're going, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, the Jews, they had the law. It came down from the mountain. It was on the tablets. It was written right in front of their faces. They knew what to obey. The Gentiles, they didn't physically have it, but they show evidence by their lives, by the fact that they know the difference between right and wrong, that it is written on their hearts. 
which is why we're told in the beginning, the very beginning, that you and I are made in the image of God, that we have the, the moral fabric of God woven into our being. The problem is, is that the seed of sin that we come into this world and we go, yeah, I don't so much know if I want to go that direction. But Paul is saying that all of us know. Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God's judgment is inescapable. It's impartial but it's also missional. God's judgment is missional. What in the world do I mean? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once made this statement. He said, I don't think it is Christian to want to get to the New Testament too soon or too directly. What on earth is Bonhoeffer talking about? Bonhoeffer is saying we need our hearts to run through the law that we might know the standard, knowing that God in his perfect holiness cannot and will not tolerate sin. And then coming to the realization that I am an unholy, unrighteous sinner who cannot live up to the law on my own. That discovery is possibly the greatest discovery that you and I can ever make. It is horribly bad news, but that horribly bad news drives me to the grace and mercy of God because he has said, my son has accomplished it for you. John Stott says, until the law has done its work of exposing and condemning our sin, we are not ready to hear the gospel of justification. To put it to you even plainer and even simpler, until we recognize we are a sinner, we will not desperately long for a Savior. And so the most loving, gracious thing that any of us can ever be told as a sinner is, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You are not special or exempt. You're in that line. And you can't pay $85 to get out of it. That bad news is the only thing that will drive us to the good news of the gospel. And so to understand that God is patient. He is patient because he desires that all of us would come to that place of repentance. We understand that his judgment in the waiting is missional. Because those who do not know him, he is, he is saying, come. To those of us who do know him, he is saying, go and tell and share that hope. On another note, there are a lot of people who want to wave this flag that says, God says you can't judge me. You, you've heard somebody throw that out there. I think there's bumper stickers. Only God can judge me. My experience is that there are unbelievers who want to shove that out there. Only God can judge me. 
and the right. There are also believers who want to say to other believers, only God can judge me. And they're right. But with the believers, it's usually because uh, I don't want the accountability of repenting of my sin. But here's my experience with both of these groups, that almost anybody whose thought process and their heart and their mentality is, God is the only one that can judge me. They don't believe that you and I are supposed to judge them, but they ultimately don't believe that God's going to judge them either. And they're wrong. Because Paul says, he will render to each one according to his works. Friends, if God does not judge, then God is not just. And God is just. He is perfect in his justice, his holiness, and his righteousness. God is just. He is also kind. And this is what should blow us away about God. He is kind, and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. In light of this, I would encourage you this morning. Maybe you're here and you, you're not really settled on is this my church? Maybe you're looking for one. I want to encourage you that if you are looking for a church home and you find a church where you never hear the word sin taught or the word repentance preached, find another church. If, if you're in a church where somehow conveniently your itching ears just keep being scratched, in other words, as Paul said to Timothy, they just keep saying everything that you want to hear, you might want to find another church. I hope that there are days that maybe you walk out of here, I don't know, even mildly irritated with me because you're confusing the message with the messenger. And maybe the spirit of God has impressed something upon you that you didn't walk in here really expecting or wanting to hear that. But God has said, yeah, I'm going to dig into the dirt with you. There are things that I have to get up here all the time and preach to you that God's already dealt with me about. And I want to say, I would rather not go there. But God says, no, this is my agenda, not yours. In light of some things that have happened over the last week, and let me just be very, very clear. The United Methodist Church voted on whether or not to perform gay marriages and to um, ordain gay clergy. The Southern Baptist Convention didn't really do anything this week but we're just beginning to figure out how to get through the smoke of the fact that for years and years and years and years and years, sexual abuse has been covered up in churches. Here's what I would say to you, friends. If you're in a church that decides the orthodox view of 
homosexuality very clearly defined by the word of God as a sin, that that has suddenly changed because that's what the culture is demanding, find another church. But I would also say to you, if that you're in a church, this one included, that begins to teach you that homosexuality is somehow a greater sin than adultery or lust or sexual impurity of any kind, find another church. God's patience with us is that we might come to repentance, not figure out how to just sweep each other's sin under the rug, but to pull it out on the table and say, I have been given victory to walk over this, not in it. Paul keeps warning, don't go there. Ultimately, God will judge our works. He will expose the secrets of men. Paul says it right here. He's already examining the motives of our heart. God is bearing witness to the thoughts of our mind, the meditations of our hearts. And so because of this, I want to exhort you this morning, please consider the heart. Uh, Where is your heart in all of this. What concerns you as we read what Paul writes to the church here? I really believe that Paul is asking a question in all of this. He doesn't come out and throw it out there, but Paul's asking a question for you and I to consider. And the question's pretty simple. Who do you think that you are? Not the like audacious, sassy kind of way, like who do you think you are? But Paul's literally asking you and I, who is it that you think that you are? Do you believe that you are the judge? Do you believe that you have somehow been burdened with the authority and the responsibility of judging and condemning the world? And I know that none of us will walk through our life like bearing that burden all the time. But what happens is we'll take it up for a few minutes. First of all, again, alleviate yourself of that burden today. You and I, we are not called to be the judge. But also bear in mind that the judge himself said to Nicodemus, I didn't come to condemn the world I came to save it. Sometimes we think we're the judge. Maybe there are other times that we think I am the innocent and not responsible. Again, remember, um, I think at times we look over at the other line and we think, oh, must think to be over there. And, And again, this is not TSA we're talking about here. Okay, can't buy my way out of that line. And the only reason that I stand where I stand right now in the eyes of God is because of his grace and mercy and the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Sometimes we think we're the judge. Sometimes we think that we're the innocent and not responsible. But friends, I'm praying that we would come to the conclusion that we are the guilty yet mercifully pardoned. That's who we are. If I begin my day remembering I am the guilty 
unrighteous, hopeless one who because of the mercy and grace of my heavenly father can even stand before him. This changes things. This cultivates a heart within me that says, Lord, I have no excuse. That says, Lord, it is only by your grace and mercy that I can even come before you. That says, Lord, where my heart, as Paul puts it, is hard and impenitent, would you break it? Would you break my heart, Lord, with the things that break yours? Would you break my heart over my sin? Would you break my heart for the lost? I want to close this morning in Luke chapter 18. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and yet they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, declared out loud, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners who take people's money, the unjust, adulterers, or even this sorry tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give all my tithes. Thank you, God. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My hope and my prayer this morning is that every one of us in this room are bearing the weight of the bad news. And I pray that for you if you don't know Christ so that you would know Jesus has come to lift that off of you. Christ came and bared the burden that you could not. Christ's death on the cross and resurrection atoned, paid for your sin. But for those of us who are Christ followers, I pray that for just a moment you and I remember the weight of the bad news that we might glory today in the good news of knowing that our just judge also happens to be our beautiful savior, wonderful king and perfect redeemer. And that he is already standing at the right hand of the father interceding on your behalf. That's good news. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.